0: Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at a bunch of stories that happened in the, in the week leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And in every story, the tension is building towards a head. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're all looking for a way to get rid of the problem that is Jesus. And despite their best efforts, Jesus makes them look, look like chumps. And last week, Michael took us through the passage where the Sadducees uh, tried to trap Jesus by presenting him uh, with a scenario that they thought made belief in the general resurrection, that is, all of us will rise from the dead, uh, make that belief look foolish. And they were, as a result, they're trying to paint Jesus as a fool for believing it. And instead, Jesus proved from their own narrow view of the scriptures, remember that the Sadducees only uh, took the first five books of the Bible as, as uh, scripture. And Jesus uh, took the verse uh, from uh, the story of Moses and the burning bush to show them that uh, the dead will indeed rise and uh, we will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. And uh, so Michael warned us of the dangers of disregarding a belief based on our own extremely limited understanding. But while there's a lot that we don't know, There are things that we can be certain of and that's what we can hold on to and trust in. Now today we encounter a break in the pattern um, because in the passage we've just read a teacher of the law comes to Jesus and asks him an honest question. And remember this is one of the bad guys, right? These guys have been trying to trap Jesus, make him look like a fool, trying to get rid of him. And suddenly this teacher of the law comes and asks him an honest question. And contrary to what most of us would have done, you know, you're an enemy, you're a clown, get away from me. Jesus treats this guy with respect. And he actually affirms him, as, as we've just read. <clears throat> and there are five main points that we're going to draw from this passage today. So, five. Normally there's three, today there's five. The first one is that all of us struggle with doing what is right and as a result we we end up feeling like failures, that's the common human condition. The second point is that why we do something, our motive for doing right, is actually more important than what we do. But thirdly, having said that, we cannot separate love from law, and this is something that that my understanding is being grown in, because it it always seems like grace and law, they don't go together so well. Do you you, you rest in grace and and then you can do what you like or you can forget that you've sinned? Or do you focus on the law and try try to obey and then you you end up feeling like a failure anyway? So so this issue of grace and law is a significant one. The fourth point is that Jesus was the only one who fulfilled both the command to love and all the rest of the commandments. So he's the only one that, that lived perfectly. And so the fifth point is that the key to living the Christian life is to focus on the obedience of Jesus and receive his love, which enables us to to give us that motivation to live a life that honors God. So those are our five points. So let's look at the context here. The guy had been listening to the debates between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees, and it says that he noticed that Jesus had given them them a good answer. And remember that he was a teacher of the law and these guys um, believed in all the oral tradition as well as all the Old Testament, so he would have been a believer in the general resurrection. So he would have heard of what Jesus said and he would have been blessed by it. He would have said, oh wow, what a great answer. And he would have been affirmed in his own faith. And then he asked Jesus a question that is something that's common to to all humanity, something that all of us grapple with today. Which is the greatest commandment? Which is the greatest commandment? Now, some of you might say, well, atheists don't believe in any commandments, but they do. And atheist um, Sam Harris, who's trying to create a morality out of the evolutionary humanistic story, uh, believes that the greatest commandment is to work towards maximizing the well-being of all sentient creatures. That's his, that's his starting point. Um, now, I'm not quite sure how he gets to that starting point, given the story of evolution, which requires a whole lot of dead sentient creatures, but that's his <coughs> kind of his issue. But the point of, remains the same. We all need laws. We all need commands to live by. And the question that we all have is what is the most important thing I have to do? But behind this question, there's another question, and that is, I know that there's a whole bunch of stuff that I have to do, but I'm not good at it. I'm not, I can't keep them all. What why would he ask, what is the greatest commandment? Right? Is it just it pop out of nowhere? No, I think he's saying that. The Pharisees had 613 laws that they were trying to follow, and this guy, who can keep 613 laws? It's hard enough to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, we don't even keep that, to be honest. <coughs> so he's saying, I can't keep all these other commandments, so give me something that's the most important and I'll try and keep that. Okay, that's what I think his mindset is. <coughs> And I think we can all identify with that. There are no, there are things that we know we should do. We know we should love love our wives in a certain way. We know we should love our children in a certain way, and and there are standards that we hold ourselves to. We try our best, but then the situation comes along, and then we just lose it, don't we? And we fail, and we go, "Oh, blown it again." And so we have this feeling of. Failure that we don't live in such a way uh, that we know to be right. <coughs> and so most of us head to a, a place where, well, I can't keep that commandment, so I'm just going to ignore it. That's where I think most people end up. I can kind of keep this one, so I'll, I'll try and try and do that. But all these other ones, uh, whatever. So no doubt he was expecting Jesus to give him one of the laws to prioritise. But which one? If Jesus had uh, given him one of the laws um, that was, uh, say, do not oppress the weak. Do not oppress, that's the main thing. Do not oppress the weak. Okay, well, you can say, well, you're a progressive, Jesus. Right? And if he said, there were 26 commandments that the mitzvah specifies to do with sex and sexual expression. If Jesus had said, it's one of these, well, you could say, well, you're a conservative Jesus, you know, and I think that's the problem with where we're at today in our society, where some of us are saying, no, these laws are the most important, and other people are saying, no, these laws are the most important, and the moment you make one law important, you kind of say, well, you can ignore these ones, or if you make this one more important, then you can ignore all of those ones. So this is the human condition. We all need laws to live by, but the demands are greater than our capacity to obey. Even if we didn't have the Old Testament, right? atheists have, have the same issue. So we feel like end up feeling like failures most of the time. So this is the first point, this is our condition as humans. And instead, what does Jesus do? <clears throat> He tells the man that the most important commandment is, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So what he's saying is, why you do something, your motivation, that's the greatest thing. right? And these words are from the uh, the Shema. The, in, in the Jewish faith, they're called the Shema, which the, and the Shema comes from the Hebrew word, which means hear or listen. <clears throat> and if you look in Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, this is where you can find those words. But when you compare these words with the passage in Mark, Jesus has added, with all your mind, to the list of what we are to love God with. So there's heart, soul, and strength in Deuteronomy, and to that Jesus has added with all your mind. And the Greek word for mind here means to reason thoroughly by looking at an issue from all sides. And so Jesus is saying we can love God by using our intellect, our reason. So don't be afraid to confront intellectual issues uh, that you have that will have implications for how you live your life, how you love God, how you love others.
1: So let's do that now, let's,
0: let's pause for a bit and think. The greatest commandment God imposes on us is to love him with everything we have and everything we are. We are commanded to love. But if anyone else laid down this mandate, would it work? Can a husband command his wife to love him? Can a parent command their child to love them? Nope. And the quickest way to lose all your friends is to command them to love you, isn't it? Why doesn't, like I was thinking about this, why doesn't it work? Why, why, how can God command us to love him? And that's appropriate. And yet, if we command others, other people to love us, wouldn't it be great if I could command you all to love me as a pastor, you know? And it just wouldn't work. I think the reason why it doesn't work is that the moment we command someone to love us, they say, Well, I'll do that for you if you do that for me. Isn't it? And can we do that? Can we, can we love each other in that way with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength? Is that even possible to love each other in that way? No, I don't think it is. And that's why it's not appropriate if we try and command each other to love in that way. Because we we can't command someone to do something that we can't do ourselves. That's not appropriate. But God can. He has loved us with everything that he is. And we can see this in the cross of Christ. So it's entirely appropriate that he does command us to love him with everything we have, because he loved us with everything that he had. And more than this, the scripture tells us that God is love, that's in 1 John 4. And this is where the the idea of the Trinity becomes so amazing and illuminating. The idea that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three persons in one being. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit have loved each other from all time. And this is why we can say that God is love. Because there's love going on within the Godhead of the Trinity. And if God was only one person, how could we say he is love? It would be different if we said we, he can love, but no, we say he is love. So this, the, the idea of the Trinity is, is an incredible idea that we just wouldn't have ever come to if it wasn't for Christ. And what this command is saying is that God really wants from us love, which means to be in relationship to him, to be drawn into his life, to experience his love. And this is the motivation that he is looking for. But if we're honest with ourselves, that's not our motivation most of the time, is it? If we're honest, most of the time, our motivation for doing good is often wanting to look good in the eyes of others. We do things to receive affirmation for ourselves and to have others say, oh, you're so amazing. You're so awesome. But have you noticed that when this happens, we struggle to receive it? Have you ever had it like last year, Sarah organized a surprise 50th birthday party for me? And everyone got up and said lovely things about me. And part of me was like, I don't like this. Do you have that? Have you been in that situation where people have been expressing their love for you and part of you goes, oh, no, 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 stop it. Have you? Or is it just me? But maybe it's just me. And I've been reflecting on this. Why does a part of me struggle to accept that? And I think when I reflected on it, that I pride myself on giving love and affirmation. I'm the one that gives love and affirmation around here. Thank you very much. Right. So that's about that's about pride. That's not about love, is it? So this is how how complex. Well, I am. Maybe you guys are a lot simpler than me, but I find I'm very I'm very complex. I have trouble weeding out what's really going on deep in my heart and soul. And so the other key motivation is fear. Fear what others will think of us. We want to be well thought of by others, and often it's a catastrophe in our minds when this doesn't happen. There's many examples. I've told you guys about the guy who drove up in a Tesla, and and suddenly I looked at my forty wrist and I was like, oh, that's not very good, is it? You know. He, he, he's, he appeared better, more successful in my eyes because he had a fancier car than me. What's that about? Again, that's a curious mixture of fear and pride. Those motivations. If, if we were truly motivated by love, we would celebrate someone with a fancier car than us, with a fancier house, with a better job, with a successful career, wouldn't we? If we were truly loving other people, wouldn't we celebrate with them? But often we're... Threatened by that success, aren't we? So Jesus is saying that why we want to do something that is right is more important than what we do. And deep down we know this is true, don't we? But in saying this, he has not lowered the bar. He has raised it. It's not enough just to obey the law. You have to do it for the right reason now. And I don't think we really, we, we, I've read that passage a lot. And that's kind of a curious thing I've, I've seen at the end. No, no one dared to, to ask him any more questions. No one dared, that, that's a fear word. People were too fearful to ask Jesus any more questions. Why was that? Because they realised what he'd done. You just made our job a whole lot harder, thanks Jesus. How can I do that? They knew that the reason why they obeyed the law was out of fear and pride, not love for God most of the time. And how can we be motivated by love for God when we're often fearful of him or bitter against him or angry with him? You're asking the impossible, Jesus. Just give me something I can do. So that's our second point, why we do something is more important than what we do. <clears throat> so what's the solution? How can we obey the law and be motivated by love for God and for others? Well, one solution, as I've mentioned, is to ignore the law. It's just like that song by the Beatles, all you need is love, we all love that song. Just love and you can ignore the law. Or try telling that to the woman whose husband just committed adultery with her best friend. Can you really separate love from the law? Is that possible? Jesus says, no, you can't. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word for hang is the same word used to describe Jesus being hung on the cross. Just as without the cross, there would be no crucifixion. You can't have a crucifixion without the cross, right? Without the command to love God and love others, the laws collapse. But in the same way, without a body to hang on the cross, there would be no crucifixion either. Without the laws to embody love, it is meaningless to say, all you need is love. So what Jesus is saying here is that every law is basically about love. Love is what the law is after. So let's Illustrate this a bit more, say, with the command to not commit adultery again. Suppose a husband didn't have extramarital sex. Does that mean he's a great husband? No. He could be cold and indifferent. He could be demanding and harsh. He could be addicted to porn. He might not be physically committing adultery, but he's not loving his wife either. The fact that he hasn't had extramarital sex, therefore, means very little in that context, doesn't it? Technically, he's fulfilling the requirements of the law, but it means nothing without the motivation and embodiment of love. If he's patting himself on the back and telling him, "Oh, ah, will tick that one off, completely missed the boat. So the point of the law that says thou should not commit adultery is primarily for husbands to be loving to their wives, isn't it? And vice versa, for wives to be loving to their husbands. On the other hand, a husband can claim to love his wife, but he might be sleeping around, committing adultery. What does his claim to love his wife mean in that context? Nothing. Without the fulfillment of the law, love has no substance. It's meaningless to say, I love someone, and then treat them terribly. Tim Keller puts it in this way, love defines what it means to live lawfully and the law defines what it means to live lovingly. Is that good? I thought that was awesome. Love defines what it means to live lawfully and the law defines what it means to live lovingly. So the law cannot be separated from love and love cannot be separated from the law. And deep down we know this is right, and this teacher of the law knew it was right too because he said, well said teacher, bravo, amen. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. But he's not saying you can ignore the burnt offerings and sacrifice if if you were a Jew. He's saying, you can offer all the sacrifices you like, but without a love for God, it means nothing. But it's, he, he, he also uh, means that if you were a Jew in those days, and you loved God, you would offer all the sacrifices, because if you didn't, it means you didn't really love God. right? So once again you can't separate love from the law because love defines what it means to live lawfully and the law defines what it means to live lovingly. And in response to this Jesus commended him saying you are not far from the kingdom of God. He's close to the kingdom but he's not there yet. What does he mean by this? I think what Jesus meant when he said you are not far from the kingdom of God is this. You recognize that what I'm saying is true and that's good. But I don't think you've considered the implication for what that means for you. I've just told you it's not enough to just obey the law of God. You have to do it for the right reason. You started out with a question that implied you couldn't obey all the laws you were required to. So what are you going to do now that I've added the command to love God and love your neighbour on top of that? And humanity, all of us, are in the same boat. Who can possibly fulfil these commands? these requirements. Who has ever met any of the Ten Commandments, let alone any of the other hundred commands? And on top of that, who has ever loved the Lord with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind and all their strength, and loved their neighbour as themselves? Who's done that? Not me. So when Jesus said, you are not far from the Kingdom of God, (laughs) I'm not sure about this, but I think he might have been speaking literally. Because he's only a few meters from Jesus. (laughs) You're not far from me. And of course, Jesus is the solution to this conundrum. Jesus is the only person who ever lived, who did love God with all his heart, soul, mind and strength, and fulfilled every one of the commands of God. And because of this, he was deserving of all the blessings that the law promised to those who kept the law perfectly. You had to keep the law perfectly. If you broke one, you were guilty of breaking them all. That was the deal. And only Jesus did that. But instead, he suffered the punishment that was reserved for the lawbreakers, and that's us. So the solution to this conundrum is to unite with Jesus by admitting that we are unable to meet the demands of the law and by accepting all he did for us. And we too, when we do this, can finally experience a love that is not dependent on our ability to live perfectly, but on Jesus' perfect performance. And this is the gospel of grace. This is the good news. We can receive the undeserved favor of all that God wants to give us because of what Jesus did on our behalf. And primarily, the, primarily, it is the privilege of knowing Jesus and having dwelled in, in our hearts. That is the greatest privilege that we as humans can ever have. And we take this for granted because in our society, it's all about us. We've, we've taken the concept of individual individualism and we've separated God from it and all that stuff is us. But in those days, imagine if you were a slave and you were told you're nothing. You're here to serve me and once you're gone, you're of no worth to me. Imagine being in that context and suddenly someone came along and told you God loves you so much that he wants to dwell in you. Wouldn't that blow your mind? So finally we can find spiritual rest and an end to our strivings to consider ourselves worthy of love because in Christ we find that we are already loved and that all of our failures have been covered by his perfect life and death sacrifice for us. So let's bring this home now. In our reading today, Jesus said that the only true motivation for keeping the law is a passionate love for God. A passionate love for God. The language he used, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength, is usually reserved for people who are passionately in love with each other, right? You hear those in, in wedding ceremonies. So this is the starting point. For keeping the law in other words the only motivation for keeping god's law would be a heart that is head over heels in love with jesus this is the spring from which the river of law keeping comes from and in the life death and resurrection of jesus he gave us the gift of that spring 1 john four nineteen says we love because he first loved us and beholding his love for us We can we can respond to a love that's already there. Our love is a response to the incredible love that God has for us, that we see in Christ. So the question today is: What motivates us (coughs) to obey the law? What motivates us to do right? If you're like me, it's this curious mixture of love for God, and yet fear and pride. Was stressing out this morning on the way here, Mickey was sick, I had to set up the sound system, we, how we do this, blah blah blah, and I found myself getting worked up. Why? Because I don't like things looking bad when we get here. Part of me, I'd like to think, that's an, that's an offering of love for God. But also, it's because it makes me look bad. Oh, things, <laughs> things are a yeah. Right? So it's this curious mixture. What about you? What is your prime motivation for keeping the law, for wanting to live rightly? If we receive the love of Christ, we can respond to it, we we know we are deeply loved and treasured by God. It's the spring from which our own love for God is nourished. And once we receive that love, we can embody it by keeping God's laws. We can manifest the love of God in tangible ways through our worship of God, through honouring and loving our spouses, through honouring and loving our parents, by treating our children with respect by living honestly and transparently, by treating others well and looking after them. That's an embodiment of the love of God, right? But implicit in these statements is a very significant issue. And that is trying to keep the law without this passionate love for God will crush us. And the problem is a lot of us try and do that. We try to obey God's law so that he will love us and bless us. We try to be good and successful and productive people so that other people will esteem us or love us. We try to live in accordance with what we think to be right so we will love ourselves. And we wonder why we feel like failures. We're doing exactly what Jesus tells us in this passage not to do. If we ever try to get love by keeping the law, whether that be from God, from others or from ourselves, law keeping will become a destructive force in our lives. That's the flip side of what we've just discussed today. So, is law keeping a positive force in your life or a destructive force? What is feeding your desire to do good, to live rightly, to keep the law? is Is it a desire to prove you're worthy of love, or is it an offering of thanksgiving for all that God has given you? The message of the gospel is this. You are more deeply flawed than you think, but you are also more deeply loved than you can ever imagine. So will you receive that love afresh today and let it be a spring in your heart which feeds your desire to do good and live rightly. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your words that we acknowledge to be true and good and right. Lord, we want to love you with everything we are. We want to love others more in in better ways than we love ourselves, Lord. But we find ourselves failing. And so, Lord, we ask that you give us a fresh revelation of how much you love us, how much you treasure us. Lord, as we... Turn the eyes of our hearts to your obedience, the the beautiful way in which you lived and died. Lord, may that feed the spring of your love that dwells in our hearts. And may that flow out of us into living honorably for you and for others. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to each one here how deeply they are loved, And enable us all to receive your love afresh today. In Jesus' name.